Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies and then supplement that analysis with guidance for master teachers on how to apply it in the classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us today. As you may have noticed, we took April off from the podcast. The final quarter of the year, as all of you know, is just absolutely crazy at school. And quite frankly, I needed some time to just regroup. But now we are back and we have the next four episodes recorded and ready to launch every couple of weeks from now until June. And I am so excited that we are starting things back up with today's episode because we are going to be talking about something that I am very passionate about, which is teaching writing in the social studies classroom. And I am a strong believer that in order to teach students how to write well, we have to learn from real world writers who write in the social studies. So joining me to discuss how to teach writing are two career journalists, historians, and authors, Patty Miller and Margaret Eads. Patty Miller is an award-winning journalist and editor whose fascination with the untold stories of women led her on a 10-year journey to unearth the history of the Breckenridge Pollard breach of promise scandal. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Salon, The Nation, The Huffington Post, Rewire, and Miss Magazine. She also currently works as the editor of Encyclopedia Virginia, a program and branch of Virginia Humanities, which is just an excellent resource for teachers and students on anything relating to Virginia. And if you have not used them in your classroom yet, I highly encourage you to take a moment, go to their new website and just browse because honestly, it is amazing the work that they are doing and I cannot advocate for them enough. Margaret Eads is also joining us today, and she is an author and former journalist whose work has largely focused on civil rights and Black activism in Virginia. In her most recent book, We Face the Dawn, Margaret Eads tells the gripping story of how the South's most significant grassroots legal team challenged the barriers of racial segregation in mid-century America. She also recently contributed an entry for Encyclopedia Virginia on Barbara Johns, the student activist whose school walkout evolved into one of the court cases that became part of Brown versus Board and changed the educational landscape of the segregated South. I really hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. And if you have any questions about how to start a writing workshop in your social studies classes using Encyclopedia Virginia resources, please do not hesitate to reach out to me directly. I have had several projects um, that I am working on with them and it has just been such a delight. I would be happy to share any of the resources that I have as well and any of the lesson plans that I have with you all. So without further ado, Let's get started with Patty Miller and Margaret Eads on writing in the social studies classroom. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Uh, Welcome back to the Content to Classroom podcast. Today we are talking about teaching writing in the social studies, and we are here with the editor of Encyclopedia Virginia and a contributor to Encyclopedia Virginia, Patty Miller and Margaret Eads. Welcome to both of you. Hey, thank you. 
<laughs> we are so glad that both of you are here. We can't wait to dive into this episode. Uh, Patty, let's just start with you. Uh, you are the editor at Encyclopedia Virginia. How did you get there? What is sort of your background and what sort of drew you to this position? Um, well, it's, a, it's an interesting question, Sam, because like a lot of writers and editors, I think I have a kind of a winding career path. Um, I started out, I went to journalism school. I received my master's in journalism in um, kind of political health policy journalism in Washington and really was drawn to the area of women's health and reproductive health um, and kind of covering those political issues. And from there, I really developed an interest in women's history and got really fascinated by women's history. So for quite a while, I had kind of a bifurcated career where I was kind of like health policy by day, writing books about women's history by night, um, or not by night, but you know, in my in my <laughs> spare time. Um, so I, for me, when I finished my last book, my most recent book, Bringing Down the Colonel, it was a nice opportunity to be able to combine editing um, and the kind of work I had done in health policy with history, which is my real interest. Um, so for me, it was just a really natural step. I love using my journalism background, my editing background. It's, I love making things really readable for folks. That's kind of how I get excited, <laughs> which is weird. Um, so it's, uh, you know, for me, it just turned out to be the perfect role. Oh, that's amazing. I think that, uh, you know, all of us have these sort of winding journeys to our current jobs. <laughs> and so I think that it's always fascinating to hear uh, anyone's journey to where they're currently working, but especially writers. I think you all have just, you know, the most winding path of all of us. Um, and so I would love to hear more too, just about for maybe our listeners who don't really know what Encyclopedia Virginia is, what do you all do there? What's kind of your elevator pitch if you have to give it to us um, for how you all serve the Virginia community? So um, Encyclopedia Virginia is a free multimedia resource on the history and culture of Virginia. But what, what we really do is kind of more than that, we try to really share the stories of all the varied folks and communities um, and eras that have made up Virginia history and share those um, with a broad audience, with both students and teachers and people in the public who are just interested in history and really want to know um, a really nice academic take on a subject area that isn't academic. You know, it's that we all our entries are vetted by experts um, or written by subject area experts like Margaret is. And so we're able to bring that content to the public in a way that's been edited to be really readable, that has great visuals primary documents attached that people can go through and either use as an assignment or just if they're like a huge history geek and want to read somebody's ledger from their store, you know, in 19, whatever, you could do that too. <laughs> so that's, that's what we do. We try to bring it, bring history to the people in a way that's really authoritative at the same time, right? We don't say authoritative anymore. I think we just want to say it's just really an intelligent kind of expert source that people can turn to. Yeah. And I've used it in my class for uh, a few years now, and it is just so handy, especially for teaching American history. You know, if you want to look up anything, uh, you guys really have a quite a catalog online right now. It's we, we do. And what's nice <laughs> is you can look up American history, but then you can also kind of get the Virginia spin on it. So like we may have some of the, we may have the founders who are associated with Virginia, but we'll look maybe a little bit more at their Virginia career as part of the entry, which is something that you might not get in a more general 
whole, you know, encyclopedia. So it's both real specific to the state and also kind of the broader kind of political history, but always with a bit of a Virginia uh, focus on things. Yeah. And uh, the president of VCSS, she is a fourth grade Virginia history teacher. And she always says, Virginia history is all of American history with just like a couple of little things missing. So, 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 true. <laughs> so, I mean, we are very Virginia centric here. And I think that Encyclopedia Virginia does a great job uh, of adding those nuances into all of the entries that you all provide. Um, so Margaret, you recently contributed to Encyclopedia Virginia. I, I forgot to ask this, is this your first entry with Encyclopedia Virginia, your entry on Barbara Johns? Actually, it's the second. I did one on Spotswood Robinson, who was one of the two people who was in my most recent book. Okay, great. Well, Margaret, you wrote this incredible entry on Barbara Johns, who was this really inspiring civil rights activist from Virginia who really got her foot in the door in high school in the civil rights movement and tried to change the educational landscape in Virginia. Um, and that should be published very soon uh, with uh, Encyclopedia Virginia. But Margaret, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, you are a veteran journalist. So tell us sort of how you got connected to EV and just sort of your journey as well. Okay, I spent most of my career as a reporter um, for the Virginian pilot in Norfolk, covering state government and politics. So I was living in Richmond. And then the last 10 years of about 30 year career with them, I spent doing editorial writing and learned that I really liked being able to have a perspective and not just sort of stand back, but actually dig in and have opinions about things. And I also found as I began to do some book writing that I really loved having the long form of journalism as it were, and um, having time to really delve into issues. So I had a couple of fellowships uh, along with two of the books that I've written one about Earl Washington Jr., who was on death row in Virginia and came within nine days of execution and then turned out to be innocent. And most recently, a book about Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson, who were two luminaries in the civil rights movement from Virginia. They were part of Thurgood Marshall's small group brotherhood um, that sort of devised and executed the strategies, legal strategies for doing away with Jim Crow segregation. So in both of those, I had some affiliation with Virginia Humanities, which is sort of the umbrella organization for Encyclopedia of Virginia. And so I became more aware of it during that time. And then when I finished the last book, I was still wanting to have some writing projects but ones that I could control a little bit. And I thought, well, doing some entries for them would be a great way to have the enjoyment of delving into history and writing about it. So that's what I did. Excellent. And uh, Margaret, I think that all of your work, you know, just shows you know, how incredibly accomplished you are and how much of an expert you are in this field. And so uh, I'm wondering too, just with working on all of your, your civil rights movement and civil rights adjacent work, um, how did you get interested in that topic? 
Well, I grew up, uh, I was in high school and college in the 1960s, which was a period very akin to the time we're living in now, a real heightened awareness about civil rights and uh, the problems in our country. And so as a young person at that time, I just was aware of those issues and interested in them. And then as I became a journalist and a political journalist, lots of political issues have a racial dynamic to them. So that continued. I had a fellowship in 1985 to, it was um, Alicia Patterson, which is a national journalism fellowship to, and my project was traveling around the South and looking at the results of the Voting Rights Act at the 20th anniversary of its passage. And I went to lots of communities in all of the states originally covered by the act from Atlanta, where you had a lot of black influence and control to Sunflower County, Mississippi, where you had a black majority population, but no influence and control and lots of communities in between. And that really um, heightened greatly my understanding and awareness of these racial issues. So that's some of the background. Mm. And I heard, you know, a little bird told me that you once interviewed John Lewis. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. When I had the fellowship. Um, he was actually the, the first interview that I did for that. He was, it was Martin Luther King Day, and he was in Richmond for an event at the Arthur Ashe Center. And I went over and interviewed him in his hotel. And that was really a memorable experience. Um, he's such an iconic and heroic figure and to be able to spend some time in his presence was an honor. Uh, that is remarkable. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to, to even be able to uh, talk to someone who was just on the ground floor of a movement like that um, and had such a hand in shaping all of the legislation in our country regarding civil rights. I, and I think, you know, if I'm hearing this as, as a teacher, uh, the thing that comes to my mind right now is, you know, students who may want to do similar things to what both of you do. And so students who want to be journalists, especially female students um, or uh, female identifying students who might be, you know, working against the tide a little bit. Uh, do you have any sort of advice maybe for any aspiring journalists out there um, in the world right now or in some of our classrooms as teachers? Well, it's become a more complicated field if you're interested in newspaper journalism, because of course it's a very difficult time for newspapers, but I hope that that will not discourage uh, young people who have an interest in writing. And my background was that I did a lot of debating in high school, and I also loved to write. And I remember reading a book about war journalists and there was a, a woman who had one of the chapters and just sort of hitting me like a bolt of lightning. Oh, you could have this career that both looks at public policy and has writing and it's called journalism. And it was just like, that's what I want to do. And that love never ebbed. So, I mean, I think practicing writing skills, but just being curious about things and, um, asking questions and all of those are things that are precursors for a journalistic career. 
Patty, what about you? Uh, I, I would certainly say yes to having a passion for writing is obviously the foundational skill. And, you know, as Margaret's career really illustrates, and I think mine does too, it's if you have a passion, I think, for a subject area too, it's really good to build some kind of specialty, like something you're really interested in. If it's politics, you know, for me, it started out kind of health policy and then kind of wound into reproductive health policy. I think it's that combination of having your own expertise with being a good writer who's really practiced their writing skills um, is what makes for a success. I was, I was kind of surprised, I think, when I went to journalism school, a lot of people getting their master's in journalism, like, no, I want to be a journalist. I want to interview people. And you're like, well, what do you want to interview them about? Like, what are you interested in? You know, and a lot of people see journalism as an end to itself, I think not as a, not that everyone has to be super specialized, obviously, but it is really helpful to have a, a passion for an area and have something you're really, because then way, whenever you're learning about things, you're never bored, you know, you're never, you never, and your career can always evolve in new directions. I think um, when you have that, you kind of self-educate yourself about things. Yeah. And, and along with that, you know, you, you're going to be curious about things that you're interested in, you know? So if you're, if you're building that, that skill of curiosity and trying to actually learn how to ask questions, which is maybe what students are doing right now, you know, find that thing that you're passionate about, find that thing that sort of lights your fire that whenever you read it in a book, you realize, you know, Hey, this is what I might like to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I think if you can find that and find that passion young, better for you, you know, <laughs> like not all of us can do that, but I think that, uh, that is a really, really good piece of advice. So, um, Patty, you know, Virginia humanities, is obviously the umbrella organization that Encyclopedia Virginia works under and Virginia Humanities Central Mission is to tell the stories of all Virginians. And so when people think of an encyclopedia, at least when I think of encyclopedia, I think of a collection of dusty volumes in my parents' house, you know, they're upstairs tucked away. Maybe they're in the attic, uh, getting, you know, a little moldy or, or something like that, you know, but your encyclopedia is not that your encyclopedia is like the cool encyclopedia. So, um, how do you all sort of translate that mission of telling stories and how do you write these, uh, dynamic entries? Well, I think we really do try to center people's stories in our entries and really talk about, you know, the human cost of things and the human drama behind things. But we also, even if it's a story, if it's a, a story that isn't a bibliography, if it's a more topical entry, we not only try to highlight the stories, but write them in a really narratively interesting way that brings in human stories and the socioeconomic and political context of the time so that everything becomes a little bit window into a piece of, of Virginia history or the larger national history. And I think people often don't think of history as stories that way. They don't think of history as a bunch of, it's really a bunch of people's stories woven together. And people, when you look at history that way, it shouldn't be boring. It really isn't a collection of dates um, kind of floating out there that you have to memorize. It's really a long, continuous story that everybody participates in. And if just dipping into a little piece of it can sometimes be either infuriating or illuminating, you know, depending on the day or the story. But um, it, it definitely, I think, helps people see themselves in the world in a different way by reaching back to the stories of people in the past. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think that is really important for students to, you know, to be able to see themselves in what they are learning about. Um, you know, I teach middle schoolers and they often get the, the, the rep that they are very self-centered, you know, as they're growing and evolving into, you know, more perfect human beings as we all are. Uh, but that's helpful, you know, to be able to see parts of themselves exemplified in the people that they're learning about, because um, it kind of makes those actions that are hopefully, you know, these good and sort of remarkable things be something that they could attain or that they could do in their own way. And, you know, recognizing too, that they are also part of history uh, as well, and that their story is dynamic, just like the stories that they're reading. Um, so I just also kind of want to touch on that with, um, Margaret really quick, you know, you are, as I mentioned, connected to the civil rights, um, movement, but also beyond that as well, just, uh, civil rights and, you know, black activism. Um, Margaret, you're working on a book now for the governor. Is that correct? And that you are, are you allowed to say that? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't know, didn't know if it was top secret information or something. Um, but if you're writing, you know, a story right now, um, how, how do you see, you know, this sort of biographical, is it a bi biography sort of, of Ralph Northam? Well, really it's more about his evolution from the blackface scandal to this racial progressivism that really is going to wind up being the most progressive term of any Virginia governor probably ever. And so race is pretty much the spine of the book. It's not, it's not just a chapter year by year biography of Ralph Northam, but it's the various parts of his evolution and how he grew. It's a little bit of a 59-year-old Southern white man's version of how to become an anti-racist. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So how did you get connected with that? Well, I had finished my last book on Oliver Hill and Thoughtswood Robinson and thought that that probably would be the last book I would do. But then when the George Floyd death came and the uh, demonstrations in Richmond, and when Northam announced that he was going to take down or hoped to take down, intended to take down the Robert E. Lee statue, it just struck me that this was quite an evolution from the moment of the blackface scandal when virtually every Democrat of note all over the country called on him to resign, and he didn't, and then resolved that he was going to make the rest of his term about racial equity. And so it just struck me that that's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you go about telling a story like this? And Patty, you can answer this too. Um, how do you go about telling a story that's so complicated like that? You know, when you go into it and you realize people have all of these assumptions about, about, this, about this person that I'm about to write about, especially someone like that who's so in the news. I mean, how does one even tackle something like that? No, Margaret. Oh, you just start doing interviews and you start, you start, well, I'm sorry, you start thinking about the story 
and the questions that you have and the different aspects of the story, and you gradually begin to think how the chapters would go. This book actually has been the most complicated one that I've done in figuring out a chronology because it's not just, it's not entirely chronological. I mean, because it is so focused on race, I have to figure out how to work in the background of his youth and his uh, sort of changes as he went when I'm trying to keep so much of it in the present. So among the things that you do in a big project like this are making a timeline. And then at least you can see the parameters of what you're dealing with. Then you have to figure out how within that you're going to break it into chapters or tell the story. And I guess you, you do a lot of research about the, the history and the setting and much of that I already knew but you try to speak to people to have different perspectives so that you understand a full context, but then you bring your own perspective to it, um, trying to find the truth that you see in all these stories brought together. Yeah. Patty, anything that you wanted to add there? Well, I think any kind you know, every book project and any large research project is really different. I've written two books and one was a fairly straight chronological history that is relatively speaking easy to write. You go through the errors and you um, you say what happened in each error. Then the second book I wrote about a, a 1893 sex scandal and subsequent trial in Washington, D.C. over a, uh, what at the time was a very scandalous breach of promise suit, was kind of like Margaret's conundrum. It was a lot of time traveling. You both had to have a, a whole narrative around a trial that occurred and the issues around that but then there were characters and they had backstories and the issues had backstories and so you do end up doing kind of a crazy it's kind of for me I do kind of a combination it's a bit of an outline and a flow chart you kind of both I, um, I think it's going to work like this and this is related to that and this is I know I have this whole piece done and this part I'm not so sure what's going to happen um, and then you just sit down and write and you kind of revise your structure as you go along um, I think it's it's good to have a lot of plans for writing and then be prepared to discard them as you proceed <laughs> that's my best advice <laughs> So does like your bedroom then look or your office look like a, like a CSI sort of <laughs> like, exactly. like a, like a, uh, a sticky, a sticky post-it kind of nightmare. Of, <laughs> and I have, I have a bad habit, you know, I'll, I'll think of something I have to put in there. And so I'll, but I don't want to put it in my formal structure. So I'll write it on a sticky and put it on a book cover and like stick it on the book cover, like put this in, you know, something real helpful like that. <laughs> and then you're, you're kind of doing that second pass through and you're like, put this in. What? Who wrote this? What does this mean? Um, yeah, you're. There's a point. I'm sure Margaret's hit this point when you're working on a book, like usually somewhere in the second draft, where your office is just piles of things and notes. And if anybody moves anything, you're like, no, I know exactly what that pile is for. All right, everyone. We're gonna take. Quick break because I just want to let you know about a really exciting opportunity that we have um, on May 20th from 6 to 7 p.m. We will be hosting our normal Scholars Hour event, but with a little bit of a twist. In this event, rather than having um, our expert guests on for a panel discussion, we are actually going to make this into an interactive 
breakout room session where teachers from all over the state can get together in small groups to discuss how COVID impacted their teaching and what they want to take away from this year of working during the pandemic. It is going to be extremely helpful, interactive, and a great networking opportunity. So I'm going to link the Eventbrite for that uh, for that event in our show notes, and I highly encourage that you register for the event. Um, it is going to be a lot of fun, really casual, and just a great way to connect and reflect after the year that we have all been struggling with. So again, that is May 20th from 6 to 7 p.m., our Scholars Hour event, and it should be a lot of fun. We hope to see you there. All right, let's get back to the episode. So Patty, let's go back to you. So you have a similar interest uh, in those who have been marginalized in American society, your book, and just correct me if I get the title um, wrong, but Bringing Down the Colonel, a Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age, explores gender dynamics in the 1890s and how antiquated ideas of female sexuality still exist in our modern world. So this story, as well as that of Barbara Johns, uh, they both showcase the power of female agency to evoke societal change. So I'm curious as to why you feel it is important to tell these particular stories. Well, that's um, that's what I'm kind of personally obsessed with is telling these stories. Um, I always feel like if you look back at history, it seems like there's one woman's story for every 20 men's stories. I mean, that might even be probably conservative. Um, and a lot of the stories only tell the stories of, you know, Florence Nightingale and people who were either just unquestionably heroic, which is great, and the people we need, or people who have been, you know, kind of recycled through history and, you know, Betsy Ross and people who um, there really isn't a, a new kind of canon of women to, to collect around. So I'm just really interested in finding those women who contributed to history who we don't know about um, and highlighting them. But I'm also really interested in women who contributed to history in ways that maybe aren't 100% conventional, but were equally important, kind of our accidental heroes in some way, um, which can be just as important as the really heroic. You know, you have the John Lewis, who's like, just as, uh, as Margaret was saying, it's just an unquestionably heroic man. Um, and then you have someone like the heroine of my book, who stood up to a man who did take advantage of her when she was a young woman, a powerful congressman. And it's a story that could be right out of the headlines nowadays, um, but took him to court in the 1890s. And when, which was a huge thing because it was shameful for her to go to court and admit that she had had this affair with this older man. Um, and people said, well, you can't do that. You'll be ruined and everyone will know. And she said, I don't care. I just want him to kind of get the same blame that I'm getting for this. That's not fair. And that was such a, brave statement for a woman in those days. And she was really the first woman that I found who stood up and did that. Um, and that was the first, I guess you could say, and unfortunately not the last wave of awareness about sexual predation and sexual abuse in the workplace. And especially of kind of older people taking advantage of much younger people. Um, so I just found that so thrilling to be able to uncover that, not only that woman, but all the amazing women who evolved around her in that orbit, it turned out um, that, for me, it's like, why wouldn't you want to tell those stories? They're so cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
that's an incredible example to set for all women, you know, and to have, to be able to read that, um, even, you know, if, one of our high schoolers is reading something like that. That would be really amazing. It's a great, you know, way to teach them to stand up for themselves and to set standards, you know, as to how they are going to be treated, you know, when they enter into the workforce themselves um, and, or just in everyday life, you know, I mean, I think that with the Me Too movement um, and everything that sort of came out of it, I think that we're realizing that this leaks into every aspect of society, you know, from just common conversations to the workplace, to government policy, you know? And the other thing um, that turned out to be really interesting about this project um, for me, though, was also the fact that um, what that story allowed me to do was to kind of get to people a lot of really historical, interesting historical scholarship that had been done around women and history, and especially women in the workplace and women in sexuality. There's been really an explosion of um, of scholarship in that field since the 1970s and 80s, but very little of it makes it into the popular consciousness, I find. Um, we have a lot of really outdated ideas about what the good old days were like for women that um, doesn't really incorporate that scholarship. So for me to take a story that's kind of salacious and then wrap all the scholarship around it and all these facts and be like, oh, see, you're learning your history. You didn't know it. Um, that's the really fun part. It's like the sneaky vegetable part is the part that I really like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sex scandal is just the butter that you put it's, on top of the, it is exactly. <laughs> That's great. So, Margaret, I'm wondering uh, for your entry on Barbara Johns that you wrote for EV, could you just take us through what did the research and writing process look like for that entry, which was a pretty substantial entry? I think it was about 4,000 words. So, um, how do you sort of begin such a writing process and how do you get a product like the one you created? Well, as Patty said, I guess a number of authors for them already know a good bit about their subject. So I had researched Barbara Johns and her the student walkout for the book that I did uh, we Faced the Dawn on Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson. That's a chapter in that book. So I knew a lot about her. I had read, there are probably half a dozen books that have been written in about some aspect of this. And so I had read those as part of that research. I'd been down to the Moton Museum in Farmville, which is a wonderful museum. And I would encourage teachers to take their students there if they have a way to do so. I had interviewed her sister, who is sort of the family spokesperson about her life. So I had all those connections. Um, then when I was doing this entry, there were a few things that I had not seen. Uh, I had wondered, in fact, at some point, if it, there would, could be a book that could be done about Barbara Johns. And then I discovered that there is a, a middle school or a high school book that has been done about her. And it's really um, quite comprehensive. So I had not seen that book previously. And that was helpful because it had some of these sort of human anecdotes that you don't always get in the um, strictly scholarship sorts of books. I did more talking with her sister. I really was hopeful to talk to her daughters because you know we know a lot about her early life. We know almost nothing about her later life. And she had five children and 
Um, she was the wife of a minister and later in life, she went back to school and got a degree. And so, you know, as, a, as an adult woman yourself, you know, there was a lot happening in those years beyond when she was 16 years old. So I did not get as much of that as I would like to have gotten, but I got some more of it from conversations with her sister. Um, I think uh, my process of how I do things is before I start to write, I go back through all the notes that I have on, uh, sometimes I divide that into chapters. I can't, you know, for a whole book, that would be hard to do, but I have topics uh, maybe childhood, education, the walkout, adult life. And as I read through my notes, I make a little jotted note of where something is that relates to those topics. It's a very time-consuming process, but when I finish it, I feel like I've got right there all the information that I've got and I know how to access it. So that's my process. And then, of course, as you're uh, writing, you read and you reread and you then have a good editor who helps you get it into better shape. So that's the process. So that's super helpful. I think, you know, starting, and I had heard this before too, but starting kind of with um, the literature that already exists on, if you're writing a biographical entry, the literature that already exists out there on the person that you're writing about. And then if you can, interview their sister um, or <laughs> interview someone directly connected to them if they are still living um, and then sort of add into that any sort of primary sources or other research from the era that you can um, to sort of contextualize everything that you are writing about um, within the time period um, and time periods. Is that sort of a good summation yeah. of kind of just like the basic research? And of course, every project has its own unique components. Mm -hmm. In doing We Face the Dawn, um, I wanted to know what was happening in a day-to-day -day way. And I figured I would not get that from a Black perspective by looking at the major white dailies of the era. So I went to the Richmond Afro-American and I read through uh, some 20 years of that. And of course, got part of the, the John story from that, as well as many other things. So you have to tailor your research to the specifics of, you know, what might be available and think, where is it that you are most likely to find some kind of information? Yeah, and I think that that reflection part is really important and a good piece for teachers to take to students is, you know, looking at what you have and then, you know, really assessing, what am I missing and what holes can I fill and what perspectives am I not sharing in what I have in my research right now? Um, and I also think, I also think that it's really helpful what you said about taking your, uh, your topics, going through all of your subheadings and everything um, in your, after you've completed your research and then organizing your notes based on those subheadings is also, I think, really important and a really good way um, for teachers to encourage students to go back through their notes and reorganize. And like you said, it can be so fulfilling because you have basically, you know, uh, an entry right there after you've done all of that work. Um, so Patty, 
have you written any entries for EV? I just wanted to ask you that as well. I haven't had an opportunity. You know, I've been at EV for just a year now. Um, so I've just really kind of been getting, we had a backlog of entries to edit and I've just kind of getting my, you know, first year uh, stars, I should say. Um, so I haven't had a chance to write something. I would love to. Um, it's time consuming though. And it's a different um, pace than editing in some ways. I mean, to, to dive really in and do that deep research um, that Margaret was talking about really does like kind of take you out of time a little bit sometimes for a while because um, you really do have to put yourself in another uh, another place and read. You end up reading so much more than you use when you write something like that. I mean, it's not even true that you use it. I mean, you end up obviously reading through 50 years of newspapers. You just imbue yourself with that kind of atmosphere of what was happening at the time. So um so I have to find something that um, I think will be worth kind of diving into for a while and feel like I can uh, give that kind of time to it. So we'll see. I'm waiting, yeah. looking for a candidate. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is probably the hardest year to start a new job. So good for you <laughs> um, for making it through your first year uh, during the pandemic. And yeah, I mean, I'm even seeing that right now um, and kind of, touch on this a little bit uh, too, but I'm getting my kids to write biographical encyclopedia entries based off of Margaret's, um, based off of Margaret's Barbara John's entry as a mentor text. And it's tough. I mean, it's going to take a while for our kids to get through this. And my English co-teacher and I sort of uh, realized the weight of what we were sort of trying to tackle, but I think it's going to be really worthwhile once we can get it get it all done, but, um, the kids are enjoying it so far. So they're just in their, uh, research, research process right now, but this will be really helpful, Margaret, everything that you said. So Patty, if after the entry is done and it is turned in to the editor, what do you, what do you do as the editor at EV when you get an entry? Well, it really, it kind of depends on the entry um, and the level of ed editing it's going to need. But the first thing you obviously do is read through it and you just, just read through it and see how it hits you. Um, some people might be subject matter experts, but not super experienced writers. And, and that's the case when an editor is really going to have to do a lot of rearranging of the text um, to maybe get a better narrative flow. That's kind of one of my favorite things to do is really to look at that big picture and how does it strike a reader? Does it, is it interesting to read? Is it easy to read? You know, a, a good narrative should flow in a way that you feel like you're just being pulled through it and you're not kind of struggling to get through it. Um, oftentimes, um, and I, as a writer, I know this writers get lost in the weeds and kind of lose the narrative flow of a, of an article of an entry. So that's the first thing I'm looking at is the big picture stuff. Does it flow? Does it make sense? Um, more experienced writers, that's generally not a huge problem. You know, you may say, oh, I would maybe put this here or there, um, but you're not really doing a ton of, of major rearranging. Other writers, you just do a ton of rearranging um, because either their narrative just isn't working or they, uh, it's, it's one of the, I think one of the hardest things for writers to figure out for people doing this work up front is what's your main kind of narrative flow through and what do you do with all the facts? You know, kind of where do you stick everything? What's the tree and what's the branches? What's the, you know, how do you determine what's information, what's carrying you through a, a, a story? Um, one writing teacher told me one time, you know, everything in a, 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 a narrative, a story, whatever you want to call it, should either 
you know, either should move the action forward or it should illuminate something about it, about somebody in the story. So you want to make sure that kind of everything you're putting in meets the criteria of it needs to be in there for a reason and it moves the story forward. So if it doesn't, that's really the editor's job is to go back and make sure that that criteria kind of met the story. Um, sometimes that's a lot of work and sometimes it's a little work. Then once you get through that big kind of structural editing, then you kind of go back and do some of the mid-level editing. Like, are the explanations of things clear? You know, if someone refers to a law from 1953 that, that had some impact on African-Americans, is the explanation of that law clear? Um, is it something that an average reader would understand and doesn't have to struggle to either get the meaning of or kind of you know trip over the explanation? So that's when you're going through and kind of smoothing out passages and um, looking at um, sometimes uh, the explanations for things. You know, someone might say the you know the Articles of Confederation did this, and you yeah, well that's kind of right, but I think that explanation could be tweaked a little bit, um, and that's that's kind of a fun part too because that's kind of you have to have some broad historical knowledge to be able to to work with that. Um, once you get through that point, it really depends. In some cases. Um, if it is not a super well-known story or a super well-known person, I may do a pretty hard fact check at that point where I'm really going through and seeing if I can prove out most of what the, the author has said. We do send our entries out after editing to be fact checked, but the level of fact checking and what's fact checking and what's editing can sometimes be a little fuzzy. And some entries need more of that up front. And some entries are pretty pro forma. You know, if you're writing about James Madison, a professional fact checker can pretty much go through all the dates in that and, and make sure that those are all, uh, those are all correct. Um, so a little bit of fact checking. And then we also, in this case, we send after our entry is fact checked, we send it out to a copy editor. So for my role as the editor, I don't do a ton of copy editing, which is like the real fine line editing. When you're looking for typos and spelling mistakes and things that aren't worded as artfully as they could be. Um, so that's that we also send that out at the end. So I don't do that up front. Um, generally, that's that part of the editing process, the what's called the substantive editing and the copy editing are usually two separate people just because one person, it's hard for one person to kind of do all that. And then at that point, what I'll do is I'll have a marked up document um, and I'll have usually in the comment section, any questions or queries from the, for the author, if something's not clear, or if you're like, how do we know this? What's your source for this? I would just mark it up with some queries. Um, and then at that point, I would send it back to the author and let them kind of answer the queries and look over my notes and questions. Um, and they would usually go through that, respond to what I've done, and then send it back to me. So usually we go through one or two passes like that with a, with a, a contributor um, where you're making some edits and sending it back to them and they're responding and they're saying, well, I think you're a little off here. Could we say this? And so there's a usually under the best of circumstances, a little bit of a give and take between the contributor and the editor about, you know, the, how the final entry shapes up. Yeah. So I want to go through a couple of things that you just said, because it was all really helpful. And I was furiously taking notes because I want to do all of these things in my classroom. So I kind of envision, you know, if you are doing this in your classroom, I envision teachers being the editors, you know, we are the ones who are receiving the work 
and then giving sort of the feedback on it. Not that we couldn't do peer editing as well. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of teachers find that that does take even more time than just, you know, do, giving that feedback yourself. So what I heard is that the substantive editing is in-house. Is that correct? Okay. That's so correct. that, and so if we're kind of using the metaphor of like building something like building this entry, you kind of, you know, reconstruct a few things in, in first. Um, and so that might look like, uh, making sure it's easy to read, that it has a strong narrative flow, rearranging certain passages to ensure that. Um, and then there is sort of a refining process that you have where you kind of maybe smooth out some things that don't really make sense or um, making sure that historical context is given um, and is appropriate. Uh, and then the other the other sort of components, sort of like the fact checking and the copy editing, that's not in-house for the most part. Is that, was that that's a correct. good summation of what you said? Yes. Okay. Perfect. Cool. So I'm going to use whatever source you guys use to send your copy editing and fact checking. Out. <laughs> I'm just going to start paying them to do all of that for me. <laughs> that is definitely my least favorite part of the job. <laughs> um, but very important. Grammar is important. So important, but important to recognize if a lot of people are frustrated by it. And I will say this is a professional editor. What a lot of people don't get is it's very hard to proof something for grammar or copy it for something for grammar that you've written. And it's very even hard to do it for something that you've edited a lot. When you've worked on a document a lot, either as a writer and as an editor, you're not going to see this, the little mistakes. It's the classic. Mm -hmm. You have to have separation of tasks. So if, you're, if, if people have trouble with proofing, one of the best things to do is have a proofing buddy, like somebody you can switch things with. That you, it's just another set of eyes is always like, it's like a miracle. That's yeah. my tip for the day. <laughs> oh, that is a great tip. And that's actually how we can build peer editing. That's how you can build peer editing. Yeah. So that would be a great, great way to incorporate that. Um, and also so that I don't have to do it. It would be <laughs> great to build that in. No, that's a really, really good point. Um, and something good for, you know, students to sort of let go of something that they've written to and you know, and to understand, I mean, to, to be able to take feedback and to be edited by peers and to have someone point out a mistake in a way that's constructive, you know, it's a skill students are going to have to have, obviously, throughout their educational life, um, even more so as they go to college and stuff. So it's a really good way to learn how to give and take, you know, uh, corrections from people, basically. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we all definitely need help with that uh, at all times. So it's not something that you just need when you're in school. That is a skill that we all need uh, in our lives, in every sort of relationship and dynamic that we have. Um, so that is really helpful. Um, and hopefully we can incorporate that into the project that we are working on. Uh, I'm sort of curious, Patty, while we're talking, you know, you all at Encyclopedia Virginia, consider teachers to be one of your most important audiences? Would you say that that's correct? I would say definitely our top, our, I would say our top audiences are teachers, students, which of course not the same audience, but obviously linked audience. And then our other big audience is kind of like history buffs and, you know, people who are just really um, amateur historians and genealogists who just love history. So that's, yeah. So teachers are definitely one of our top audiences. Okay, cool. So 
I'm curious as to how you all, when you're writing entries uh, and creating and curating these entries, how do you envision educators using these materials in your classroom? Well, there's two ways we could see them using them. One is for themselves, you know, when they're working on lesson plans or trying to get up to speed on a historical topic that they haven't, you know, uh, had a chance to read about in a while and really want to see cutting edge scholarship. And I think that's really important, especially with a lot of the issues we're dealing with nowadays around indigenous populations and race in the state of Virginia um, is to have a, a really reliable peer reviewed source that people can go to for information rather than scrambling all over the internet, trying to find an art find articles about something to see what you kind of think is what this is you can just go here and say oh what was the story with Robert E. Lee and slavery that was the story interesting um, so so for teachers is a primary resource for themselves obviously but then also secondarily is a resource they can assign to students whether it's the entry themselves um, because a lot of them are I mean we as an editor, we kind of edit for about a 12th grade reading level, give or take. So it's obviously a stretch for some middle school students, but kids with good, it should be accessible to most, you know, fairly, fairly competent readers by, you know, the beginning of high school or so. Um, and we try really hard to edit the entries so that they're not so erudite that they would be difficult, even just in concepts um, for people to read. Uh, and then we also have lots of primary documents that make and a lot of great awesome um, illustrations and art objects. We have 3D resources of certain like physical objects. So those are also things teachers can assign to students to use for projects. Um, uh, and the, especially the primary documents are something that we're really proud of having directly linked to our entry. So if you're reading about Barbara Johns, you're gonna be able to see you know, a newspaper article that talked about that strike and how people in that town, you know, the white population in the town saw that strike. So that's a way to kind of bring in those, almost like a 360 degree historical perspective on um, stories that can be really interesting for students. Yeah, so would, would you all, and I'm just asking this because when I was, when a few episodes ago, we talked with uh, the uh, the members of C-SPAN classroom, and they, you know, made a big emphasis on the fact that they are nonpartisan, and that that is one reason why their sources are so reliable and just you know good for accessing for the classroom. Is EV considered nonpartisan? We are definitely considered nonpartisan. We are a part of Virginia Humanities, which is our larger umbrella organization, which is a nonpartisan humanities council. Um, and so it's really important to us, obviously, that our entries don't reflect any partisanship, any particular uh, political viewpoints. Um, and I think that is one thing that gives you a lot of legitimacy is when people know that this is information that they can come to that is kind of the, par the partisan free zone of, of information that is, uh, and again, you don't have to go over the internet trying to figure out what's reliable and what isn't reliable. You know that it's, it's reliable, it's been fact-checked, it's nonpartisan. Um, and so that, I think that checks a lot of boxes for people in terms of, especially for teachers these days. Yeah, and it's also, you have, you all have a great organizational system where you have entries organize, organized um, alphabetically, you have them organized by uh, topic and um, by time period. So, you know, if any way that you are searching for something, you can find it on EV. And I think that that also, that accessibility is really, really helpful for teachers when we're trying to scramble to find something uh, for a class, you know, in the next morning, it's always a really good go-to. 
Um, so we sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but what, uh, what does behind the scenes look like at Encyclopedia Virginia? How do you all decide on what topics you want to commission? And I guess within that, are you all prioritizing certain people, groups, topics right now? Or uh, is it kind of a free-for-all? I know it's not a free-for-all, but is it? <laughs> it it's not a free-for-all. You know, we tend, we prefer to, to commission content in big chunks when we can. And usually that's based around like a grant. Um, we've had grants on the African-American experience and reconstruction and the age of Jefferson. And so in those cases, we'll have a whole tranche of content. We'll develop kind of an entry uh, wish list, and then we can go out and assign those entries. In other cases, people will bring individual ideas for stories to us. But then in other cases, we'll say, oh, this is really in the news right now, and we don't have anything about this. I mean, luckily, we, we're almost in that uh, situation, we would have been in the situation with Barbara Johns if Margaret had not brought us the idea for that entry, because by the time it was announced that she was going to be the statute that was going to be the replacement in the, the statutory hall for Virginia, we knew we had our entry like already safely. It was already in the copy editing process. So that was great because she was going to be in the news. And obviously to be Encyclopedia Virginia and not have an entry on her would have been like, that would not have been great. Um, so we also try to think that way. Like, what are we missing right now that's in the news? Um, we look at books that are coming out. If someone has an interesting book coming out, oh, we which that's a great topic. Everyone's uh, a lot of questions about that. Let's commission an entry on that. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a intuitive process where we both work around these bigger long-term grants and then what we think we really need to just make sure we cover. Yeah, that was, that was really good then that Margaret wrote that amazing entry and that you all have it in your back pocket now. Um, do you know when Margaret's entry will be uh, released or go live, um, as the kids say? Um, as the kids say, I think it's pretty it's been copy edited. So once the, 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 uh, the rest of our kind of backdoor process, once our entries edited and it goes through fact checking and copy editing, then we have just two editors, one who, who not just does this, but for this part of the process, pulls in primary resources for the entry. So it's in that process right now where we're putting it into the um, WordPress. So it looks great. And we're putting in primary entries and then our media enter editor polls, she gets illustrations and photos and things like that. And she has relationships with um, a lot of museums and things like that and can sometimes get things that aren't, have not been accessible to the public. Like you've either had to go to the museum to see it, or it's a rare print that's never been reproduced. So oftentimes we'll have images um, that, that other folks do not have for, for that subject matter. So that's where, I believe that's where Barbara is right now. She's being, she's made me all prettied up, all gussied up. Um, and so once, once that's all done, once she looks gorgeous in WordPress and we have these gorgeous images and we have all these cool primary documents attached, then we'll kind of go through it one more time and give it a final, you know, uh, once over and then we push the publish button. So I imagine she'll be published within a month or so. Ooh, that's exciting. That is very exciting. Um, so I mentioned this earlier, but my students are beginning the process of writing their own biographical entries on Holocaust survivors who made their way to Virginia after World War II. Uh, we are in the process of listening to their oral testimonies right now. And we are going to be using your entry, Margaret, as our mentor text. Uh, so students will be reading your entry and kind of breaking it down, uh, getting inspired uh, 
by all of the techniques you've used, all of the different strategies you use to write your entry and just how you incorporated history into this entry. So I'm wondering, do you have any advice that you would give uh, some of these kids who are 12 years old embarking on this journey with us over the next few weeks? Well, I would say first, to do some research about the Holocaust and World War II so that they have the context of why are they even doing this? Why is this important? And then if they were able to interview, but if not, then just they will, they'll be able to read some interviews. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if they were actually interviewing a person, then I would make out a list of questions that they have and make sure that they're not yes or no questions, but are things that are actually going to evoke some response of, you know, how did you feel when, or tell me about your parents or that kind of thing. But they could in their own minds have some questions for this person that they want to see if they can answer from what they've written. Um, I think it's helpful to make a timeline of a person's life. I'm a big believer in timelines. And so to the extent that they can do that, then they can just sort of see where they're missing pieces or they can try to imagine if they don't have actual access, but based on the historical work they've done, some thoughts about what might've been happening with that person. And then I guess when they start to write, the first question is, why is this person significant? Why is it that we're writing about this person. So they need to answer that question for themselves. And then just a little trick, sometimes if you're trying to think of something that you want to start with, um, if you tell somebody about somebody's life or about your research, the thing that sort of gets their interest is often the, most, the best thing you've got. I mean, just when you get that reaction from somebody of, oh, that's really interesting, then maybe that's where they want to start the story and then go back and just do something of a chronology of a person's life that can, that can happen. So. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all extremely helpful. I love the idea of, and I think this is especially appropriate for my students who are middle schoolers, uh, for them, if they, if their um, person that they're writing about is not alive to think in their mind, what would they ask this person if they, they were right next to them? Um, and that can be a great way to identify what holes you want to fill with research um, and what things you need to seek out based on what you heard in the interview. Um, and I think it's too, like, that's a really good tip about, uh, starting with the best thing that they've got, you know, by telling other people the story. Um, one of the things that they're sort of working on now, the first thing, their first job after they finish listening to the testimony is to do a flash draft of just retell the story. Like as you heard it, using the notes that you have, you know, try to be as accurate as possible, but also just, just get it down. And then that would be a good next step is actually to have them say that to someone else and, you know, have someone else say, oh, well, this was really interesting. And so they can sort of figure out what to highlight. Um, that's all super helpful. Um, Patty, what about you? Do you have any pieces of advice 
for any of any of the kids as they're working on this? Well, I would definitely second the timeline advice. I think it's almost every author's secret weapon. I'm like a huge timeline person. My last book I had about, I had a lot of like four main characters and then a couple of important minor characters who were not well-known people. So I had to create all their lives. So at some point I just had these timelines for everyone. Like these just like, and then you kind of see where things intersect and it's like, oh. but basically if, if someone's finding like when they sit to write, they can't get through the story. Like they can't get through that flash draft. Like that's a great idea. It was like, just get that narrative down. That's really the hardest part. Then you can fix it up. Like they can make it pretty. But if they're finding it's hard to do that, it's probably because there's holes in their timeline. Like they just don't know enough to get to the next point in that person's life. And usually if you get stuck in writing, it's just because you don't know enough, either about the context or the specifics. And it's, it's what people say is writer's block is really just usually not enough information that you have really to to cover that i mean we're here we're talking about nonfiction, of course so though we want to highlight the most interesting parts you have to have enough to kind of get you from place to place a little bit so um, if you're stuck it's like it's generally because you just don't know enough about something yeah i love that you know if you're stuck it's just because you don't know enough about something um and so the answer is to go and seek more information or to fill in the gaps in your timeline and that's kind of our, our second sort of major step. Our first step is getting to know their survivor. And the second step is timelines. And then we're going to actually start the, the building of their, their entry. So I think that that's a really good piece of advice. Margaret, do you have anything for when you get stuck, uh, whenever you are writing that kind of use as a trick to help you keep going? Oh, I think you're muted. I stop and walk away or I, or I just stop for the night. I mean, it really is amazing how just taking a little break can often unstick you and how things sort of, at least for me, come to me uh, when I've walked away from a project. And I guess, you know, I mean, there'll be times when there's no way you can get information that's gonna fill the gap because it just doesn't exist. So then you have to try to know about the time period that you're writing about. I mean, there are whole biographies of people about who very little, um, you know, resource material is available, but people learn, historians learn so much about the era that they can imagine with some accuracy what a person would have been doing. And then they have to say they're imagining but that's part of the, the historical process sometimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious too. I thought about this whenever you mentioned that you had interviewed Barbara John's sister and Patty or Margaret, you can answer this. So when you interview people, you're dealing with memory, you know, and that can be flawed. So how does that sort of play into writing something that does need to be accurate? And, you know, cause I could see these kids and one of the problems we're kind of having right now is that, you know, all of our survivors are from Europe. And so they all have really heavy accents. English is their, you know, second, third, fourth language. And um, so we're trying to interpret things that they're saying. So how do you deal with that? You know, maybe having people remember things differently than actually happened. 
Well, you can not only say that their memories may be flawed, you can assume that they are flawed because, I mean, it just happens all the time. I remember in writing the Earl Washington book, there was a critical meeting that had to do with whether or not they were gonna do DNA testing. There were three people in the meeting. Two of them remembered the exact opposite thing, which they thought had happened. And the third didn't remember that there'd been a meeting. So you just have to dig as deep as you can, put it together as best you can, and then acknowledge in your writing that you may not know, but this is your best interpretation. The, with Barbara Johns, for instance, Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson told different stories as to how they first learned about that case. Hill said that there was a phone call. Robinson said there wasn't, that it was just a letter. And Mr. Hill's story actually changed over time because in his early, couple of early references to it, he didn't mention a phone call, but then it became clear in his mind that there'd been a phone call. Well, Barbara John said there wasn't a phone call, but the um, Bob Smith, who wrote the original book about Prince Edward County and that walkout, determined that a phone call had been made from the school to the law office on that date. So it was just a muddle. And basically, I just put it in a footnote and laid that out. And in the main part of the text, I just said that they received this letter because I knew they received the letter. There was no doubt about that. And the, the other thing you can do um, is, is, and this is where fact checking can be a writer's job, it can be an editor's job, it kind of how it runs through the whole process is that, you know, if, if someone recounts, for instance, in their, their history that, you know, they were, they were sent to Auschwitz in, you know, 1942. Well, uh, people can also do a real kind of basic fact checking, you know, well, what year, and this would be something for the students to do at like a, a basic level, you know, do we know at what year Auschwitz started taking prisoners, you know, real basic stuff. Cause that's the, that's the things people get wrong all the time in history. Oh, remember it was spring when it happened, you know, and you look it up and you're like, well, it couldn't have been spring because that didn't happen until October, you know? So that, to me, that's kind of the fun part of doing some historical research is when you start digging down a little bit, like, well, could this have happened the way this person said it happened? Um, obviously there's, I think the um, Holocaust Museum has a, you know, a great repository of a lot of the captured German records from the concentration camps, but they're all in German. So obviously that's not something, but in theory, if you were, say you were writing a book about one of these people, you would go back and you would try to get those records and you would try to say, okay, was this person in Auschwitz for, you know, and the, uh, those records have holes in them. They're not perfect records, but, but they're quite good. The Germans were quite good at keeping records, unfortunately. Um, you know, was Auschwitz open? Was this person in Auschwitz or were people from his town sent to Auschwitz? You try kind of a couple different levels of getting close enough to the truth. Um, and, and you try to prove out, well, you know, every historian's heart stops if you get to the sentence that said, you know, no, no Poles were sent to Auschwitz in 1941 or 1942. And someone who's a Pole is telling you they went, to, then you'd be like, that's when you get to that kind of, um, situation where Margaret just where you just have to try to make your best way through the model and put it in a footnote and move on get out yeah absolutely and I think too you know 
that, that very basic of just like, okay, well, let's go to what we can find out. What, what is the most readily accessible information we can find? You know, that's a great way to sort of steer kids in the right direction. And that's, like you said, it's kind of fun. You know, you're sort of playing detective and they, they like that. So, um, and then I think too, it would be interesting, you know, you mentioned, you know, someone saying maybe that it was spring when they arrived, but maybe for like, just, you know, as an example, maybe Auschwitz didn't start taking prisoners until October of 1942 or something like that. You know, what would be interesting is to, put that in the entry and then to sort of explore, well, what does that difference tell us about that person's experience? You know, like what, for instance, I know one of the survivors that we were listening to, she said, you know, I don't remember any summers like while during the war. And I think that that tells you something about the trauma that they were going through and just how, you know, it always felt cold. It always felt, you know, like they were in sort of this Siberian (laughs) climate, you know, just like really dealing with the worst possible things that humanity can imagine. And that tells you something separate as well. That tells you about like the emotional experience. So noting those differences can be really um, interesting, I think, too. And, and, um, and I th- one thing, I think it's a really good point. I think you're interrogating these things with empathy is the way I would say mm-hmm. interrogating these facts with empathy, realizing that people in traumatic situations are unlikely to remember everything. And if someone says, yes, I was sent to Auschwitz in the spring and you find it wasn't open till the fall. And then you see, oh, but there was a, a little camp somewhere outside of their hometown that was temporarily used to receive Jews before they were sent there. Or you said, oh, they were probably there for six months and they just don't remember because it just it all got blurred into when you went you know so you have to really have a lot of empathy when you're looking at these facts and and put yourself in the shoes of those people I think yeah absolutely one cute it was sort of cute to me was you can imagine that Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson told these stories over and over again and there would be some stories where they each put themselves in the main role in the same story where they were at some event and some farmer spoke up and said to them something which you know it couldn't have been both of them but anyway I just thought that was <laughs> humorous and very human really because you tell a story over and over and the story sort of takes on a life of its own and the details get switched around to make the story a little bit better or whatever. Yeah. And we're all the protagonist of, you know, our own story. So, <laughs> so that can definitely come into play uh, as well, for sure. Uh, well, Margaret and Patty, it has been just such a delight talking with both of you today about your writing process and uh, all the work that Patty, you do at Encyclopedia Virginia and Margaret all of the amazing just journalism work that you've done and the books that you've written. Um, Margaret, are there any other projects or events that uh, you are working on right now and that you wanted to mention before we leave today? Well, I, I had thought that Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson would be my last book, but when Northam announced after the George Floyd situation that he was taking down 
the Lee statue, it struck me that's really quite a story. This man who had the blackface scandal and now has pretty much evolved into the most racially progressive governor Virginia's ever had. So I have been doing interviews with him and his people and um, hope that that will be a book. Wow, that is super exciting. And then Margaret, also, where can uh, where can our listeners find you if they wanted to reach out to you or just get connected more to your work? I have a website and it has an email link, so they're, they should feel free to use that and write to me. I'd be happy to hear from them. Okay, excellent. And Patty, what is Encyclopedia Virginia working on right now? And how can teachers get connected to your work there? Well, we are working right now really on a cross section. We're kind of finishing up some things and uh, brainstorming some new sections. Um, as I said, getting through the first year was just a lot of kind of a uh, little bit of catch up work and stuff. So, um, you know, we really are, are still covering everything from, you know, pre-colonial Virginia to the really, I would say the 20th century. We don't have a ton about the 21st century yet, um, but obviously teachers can find us at encyclopediavirginia.org. And we also have a blog uh, at, that people can follow that I write and a monthly newsletter they can subscribe to. And that's where we try to update about new entries and provide a little guidance about how some of our entries might be fitting into the news at the current moment or some upcoming anniversaries or anything like that. So they can, um, on our website, they can also follow our blog and follow our newsletter. And we also have a, you know, an email. We'd love to hear from people with suggestions for either specific topics or just um, letting us know how they're using you being in the classroom. We always love to hear about that. Excellent. And then how can our listeners find you if they want to hear more about your work? Uh, are you, you may be writing about future sex scandals in the future, we be. hope. So. I'm always looking for a good sex scandal. Uh, they can look me, I'm at Patty, uh, Patty at pattymiller.com. Um, and people can find about my books there and some of the other things I've written. Excellent. Well, Patty Miller and Margaret Eads, thank you both so much for joining me today. And listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. We will see you next time on Content to Classroom.